WOR, AM and FM, your RKO General Station in New York. If you want to scare the living you-know-what out of anybody you happen to know, uh, just, you know, as you walk up to him and say, uh, what, what happened? And he'll look at you and he say, what do you mean? What do, what, do, what do you mean, what happened? But he will say it with a very different way. Is it in there, Lee? Don't, don't. Is it, did I leave it in there? He will look at you with a very different look in the eye. Uh, as a, what, what, what do you mean, what happened? Well, then go down and get it. It's all right. Just, just hurry up, go. Uh, <laughs> what happened? Well, uh, what happened? I mean, what did happen? What did happen? Well, everyone secretly is hiding something that did happen. You know that, don't you? Of course. Of course, Simon. Of course. And uh, don't think for a minute that I'm the discoverer of the principle. I am the victim of the principle, which is very different than the discoverer. Oh, speaking of, uh, of what happened... Uh, a friend of mine uh, brought his insurance policy in here to the station, and he says, here, you must, you must see this clause. Uh, it's a little addenda. You know, it's hooked onto the bottom of the insurance policy. It's one of these engineers around here that own houses and that kind of stuff, you know, very strong union. And uh, it has a, a little clip thing that, uh, that hooks it on the bottom, and it says, Form number 864, edition August 60th. It's a very official-looking thing. It's, you know these new kind of typewriters that look like they're, they're not typing, they're making little scrolls? You know, the kind, well, that's the way it's done. That really is a very impressive thing. See, it's very impressive. It's not look like it's printed. It's imprinted, different from being printed. And it says the following nuclear clause is hereby made a part of this policy and all endorsements, riders, and other forms attached thereto. 
That kind of language. It's, it's got you in it's got you in the palm of its hand right from the any time anybody uses there to attached hereunto and unsunder. Well, where are you going to go? You know? uh, nuclear clause. Very big type there. Nuclear clause. This policy does not cover loss or damage caused by nuclear reaction or nuclear radiation or radioactive contamination, all, whether directly or indirectly, resulting from an insured peril under this policy. Well, no, uh, that's a very interesting assumption. That means if an A-bomb hits or an H-bomb, or a cobalt bomb, or a Q-bomb hits, there will be guys around left to collect insurance. And it also, a very interesting assumption it makes, that there will be insurance companies left to pay it. I wonder whether it's done for their own feeling of satisfaction and safety. You know, it's a... Yes, they very well might, but what makes you think there will be a West Coast after one of these things hit? You know, we always assume one little boom and gone, you know. I'm sorry, uh, at a certain kind, you hit, you hit this pyramid in one certain place, there's no pyramid. Uh, in short, there is, has, has it ever occurred to you that the United States, like every other, every other continent, this is making a difference, like any other physical body, has what they call a, uh, a structural center. Yes, it has a, a center of gravity. Uh, not not really a center of gravity, a center of structure. In short, it's got, <laughs> what, what was it my old man used to call it? He used to, a vital spot. He used to always talk about hitting somebody in the vital spot. Well, now, if you hit a certain thing in the vital spot, it's like hitting, a, a, you, have you ever seen those big pyramids of Wheaties or boxes of, of cornflakes in the uh, A&P? Well, now, you can take a cornflake box off a certain place and nothing happens. You, you just... You know, put it in your cart and you're ready. You take a cornflake box out of the right place and there ain't no pyramid, right? All right, that's the vital spot. Now, if you hit our continent with the right A-bomb in the right place, no west coast. It just all folds up like a great big paper pyramid because it's a physical body, you know. <laughs> I don't like that squeak. I just threw that squeak in there because it's Monday. My God, Dickie, get off my back. Uh, we're back here in business. We'll be here for a while. You know, speaking of being back in business, there's a little ad here. I, I've I've been uh, I've been uh, putting these things in my vast file of trivia for you know a thousand years from now. They want to know how it really is. They're never going to get it from uh, oh uh, what is his name uh, Henry Steele Cominger. They're never going to get it from uh, the writings of Bruce Caton. They're not going to get it from uh, Kerouac. I think they're going to get it from the little ads in the back of the Times. Here's one that says, And ye shall know a man by his crest. It's a very good phrase. I will repeat that to you. It is, it is printed in those italics that they always reserve for when they're printing little quotations from, uh, say, the Revelations or the Book of Psalms. It comes on and says, And ye shall know a man by his crest. And then it goes on to say, Know the pleasure of an executive haircut. By Albert of Fifth Avenue. I think I'll go in and have an executive haircut. Maybe that's what my problem's been. I've been getting corporal haircuts all my life. You know, I'm too serious. Look at this thing I've got here. And you know, oh, by the way, that one lady wrote in and says, "Mr. Shepard, judging from your program, you are short, you ha you are bald, and you have a red beard. I am not one of the three. Thank you, ma'am. Now we go to the next one. Why does the top of my head? Uh, peel? Well, it's because I have a short haircut, and it, it's, 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 it lets the sun come in in between. You peel in between the things there. All right, all ready? All right, let's go.
No, oh, hold it, hold it. No, that's not the right one. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Cut out the finger symbols. Turn around, the next thing you know, the clowns come in with knee symbols and finger horns and everything. No, pick one that sounds sinister. And while, while they're picking one that sounds sinister, speaking of the sinister, uh, this is uh, Monday night and I feel great. I have, have a little thing here that uh, reads Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, you are, of course, aware that, uh, that, as we've said so many times on the program, that it is now becoming quite obvious that, that uh, imagination and the fantasy and dreams and showbiz has taken over from reality itself. I mean, reality is nothing. You know that. I mean, you, know, you know what I mean. It rains and dogs do stuff on hubcaps. And then what is this reality? And, and so, uh, you know, who cares about this jazz? So, so uh, we have substituted for that now the, the giant production. Well, now, uh, here, here is just a little news note, which I find out oh, you won't be using that yet. I'll, I'll give you the cue. Uh, a little news note, which I think, well, it's almost like a Beckett play. Uh, I think uh, Samuel Beckett is probably one of the best two or three playwrights of the 20th century. Best in the sense of saying something about uh, where we stand right now, or where we don't stand, or where we've never stood. Maybe perhaps that's better. Where we always think we're standing, where, well, that gets pretty complicated. We go on all night with that one. However, uh, this is kind of like a Beckett play. Now, we always think Beckett, Beckett or, say, Ionesco, we always think this takes place somewhere in a, in a, in a, in a, in a Paris, uh, perhaps uh, Garrett somewhere. You know. This doesn't happen in Cleveland. Oh, oh, hey, one more thing. Uh, I've been getting... Uh, I, this is kind of a night to clear up a lot of problems here. Uh, one more thing. Lately, I've been getting all kinds of letters from people asking if... Uh, if there are tapes available of these shows, what's what's going on out there? What what is it? Have you noticed that in the mail there? Yes. No. Is my answer. Get off my back. You know what tape costs? Forget it. I'm not going to send you any tape, Mac. I mean, you ever, have you ever thought of writing to Steve Allen and saying, oh, that was a very good show. Please send me a Kenny of it, please. I didn't have time to look at it, and I'd like to run it off on my 16 millimeter thing here for my friends. It costs only $740 a foot, but send it along anyway, because I'm a listener, you know, and I'm a viewer, and I dig you. So please send me a big kinescope. And, oh, by the way, while you're at it, uh, there were a whole bunch of shows you did last winter. I don't remember what they were about. There was a guy with a juggler, and there was a guy that came out and whistled through his nose. Send those two along while you're at it. I know it won't be much trouble. Just put it all in one box and send it along. Uh, thank you. I am closing postage, one-and-a-half-cent stamp. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. And then about six weeks later, he gets there. You rotten bum! I wrote for your. You'll never get me listening to your program again, you son of a gun! What are you talking about? Didn't even send me. <laughs> well, uh, and then then other people have written about whether or not I have any tapes or anything out. Well, I do have two LPs out, and uh, they're they're so underground and so in that I don't even have copies myself. That's true. Uh, I have copy of one of them, but it's worn because Long John did it. With the thing, he used it on the bottom of his desk there for a while. He has a short leg, and uh, well, he has two short legs actually. You know, Long John is a funny guy. He isn't the way he looks. He has shorter legs than most people. He just has long shirts. Well, uh, while you're, he does. <laughs> Very funny. Well, while you're, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> he's a funny guy, Long John. When he sits down, he's a little guy. When he stands up, well, I don't know. It's hard to figure out. But uh, when, when you're, when it's all a matter of perspective. You know, Einstein dealt with that problem. It's a funny thing. You throw an orange out and it goes up in the air. 
Uh, and if, if the elevator is going out, if, if the elevator is going up fast, what if an elevator was traveling at, the, at say, the speed of, uh, oh, like sound, see, and you were to throw an orange out of it, would, uh, and would the orange continue to go up, or would it go down? It'd go up, huh? Uh, well, I'm just asking, you know. I'm just sitting here to worrying about uh, loused up perspective. Speaking of loused up, oh, that reminds This is WORAM and FM, New York. And uh, we'll be here till you know, the thing, till our, our luck runs out, as I've so often said. This is Harold Monolith here. That's my name. So when, you, when you're angry, you write to Harold Monolith here at WOR, and you just tell him I'm rotten. There's been 4,000 guys try to get me fired over the last four and a half years, and over 3,927 of them have succeeded. So <laughs> you might as well take a shot yourself. <laughs> Good luck. Well, well, actually, if you if you succeed in getting me fired, it'll be the best thing that'll ever happen to me, because then I'll get a job, and then I'll become truly dangerous. Oh, yeah. I'm liable to get a job with, say, uh, the transit system and raise the price of fares. No telling what I'll do if, if you get me kicked out of here. I'm liable to move into because I've made a lot of connections, and you've got to be careful of me. You know, fool around with me. Well, while we're in the subject of fooling around here, uh, gee, I forgot what I was going to say just as well. Oh, yes, the orange. Oh, yes, you want to know about the orange. Well, uh, <laughs> that's perspective again. We don't want to get involved in that. That gets everybody mad. Uh, you throw the orange out of an elevator. If the elevator is going up 4,000 miles an hour and you throw the orange out, does the orange go down or up? The problem. Or does it just continue to go alongside of you? If you overcome gravity... If, if you can learn to, you have to, it's, it has to do with para, para, parabolic reflections. There's a lot of stuff about parabolas in there, that kind of things, hyperbolic functions. Oh, how, by the way, how are your hyperbolic functions lately? I, I was meaning to ask you, that, yeah, I know, I know it's terrible when you get older, I know. I, I was uh, going to ask you about that, but uh, I guess it's best that I don't. It's pretty early in the week. Uh, but uh, if uh, any of you out there would like to... Um, Oh, yes, so somebody... Oh, it had to do with those records. Oh, yes, I do have two LPs out, in case you're interested. And one of them is called... Uh, I did not... I, in fact, I, I, I was so mad when they named these records that I protested with the union. But the union that I happen to belong to has nothing to do with uh, the business that makes records. I belong to the local 1010 CIO Steelworkers of America. I do! Honest to John, and I wrote to them, and I told them what they'd done to me at the record company, and they just wrote back and said, pay your dues. I hadn't paid for, like, you know, 500 years or something. And uh, that's true. I still have a, a card in Local 1010, in case you're interested. I'm not, but you might be. You know, I, so, <laughs> I, I've uh, got this card, and any time they want me in the coal strip, I'm ready. And that includes the hot strip, too. There's a couple of pretty, pretty good places over on 23rd Street. Belly dancers. It's hot strip joints. And I'm uh, <laughs> sorry, that got right past you. You know, there is an outfit in the steel mill called the Hot Strip. I am not talking about burly Q joints. The Hot Strip. Well, you know what a Hot Strip place is. You do? My George, you're not as innocent as you look, do you? Are you? You've been around. <laughs> well, uh, what's even more interesting, since it represents an extension of the Western philosophy of frigidity at all costs, is the Coal Strip joint. That's really interesting. Oh, cold rolling up. Oh, well, now, please, don't bring sex into this. That's another problem. That's Albie. That's his department. Cold rolling. Oh, I don't even like to think of that. 
Coal rolling, terrible. That's that's like bundling, isn't it? It's an earlier tradition. It's an American thing, of course. It's back in the early days. Well, uh, I have two of these LPs, and these LPs. Yes, this beard is terrible, isn't it? I have to. <laughs> no, it doesn't itch. The only the only thing about beards is that other guys who don't have them think they itch. Does the top of your head itch? It does. Well, green. I think it's very good, and they say green soap helps that. Uh, but uh, does the top of your head itch? It does, seriously? Well, gee, I, I can see why you suspect that beards itch, too, then. I mean, you've got a special local problem there. But but uh, seriously, I cannot figure out why people think beards itch. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's like any other is here. You know, it's, it's, a, it's just a normal thing. Actually, you know, shaving is abnormal. It really is. Uh, you know, you let this thing grow. I'll tell you one thing about beards. Oh, boy. You can certainly, immediately, as soon as you grow a beard, the, you, you separate the women from the game players. Oh, immediately. I'll tell you that. Oh, boy. It's funny how they fall by the wayside. You can, it's immediate. Uh, one friend of mine who's got a beard, he says, you know, he says, you get a beard and immediately you can tell the game players from the women. And he says, and you know, some guys spend their whole life trying to do that. And he says, a beard does it in 30 seconds. Right away, they peel off two different directions. And uh, funny thing, oh, we don't get into that. Funny thing, the women who, who are game players often don't know they are. You know, they just think they're waiting for Mr. Right, which I suppose is a game too. Well, has Mr. Right come into your life yet? Send your name and address to Mr. Right in care of W O R A M N F I. That's spelled with R I G H T. Mr. Right. I'll take care of your. Well, of course, on the other hand, if you, uh, I, I uh, often thought that. Uh, Oh, hey, speaking. Oh, do you want to hear the Tennessee Williams thing that I, uh, the, the, the Beckett piece? Yeah, here it is. I'm going to do this thing. Now, uh, I'm going to read this to you uh, because it uh, makes you wonder where Beckett stops and reality starts. I'm talking about Samuel Beckett here. Nothing to do with this play over here. Samuel Beckett, Nashville, Tennessee. Now, that's enough to lure you into somnolence right there, isn't it? Nashville, Tennessee. How do you picture Nashville, Tennessee? Well, certainly one thing you do picture people in Nashville, Tennessee, or any other place outside of certain very restricted areas of New York, you picture the people as being people of a certain, of a certain uh, squareness and a certain involvement with their environment. Let's, let us to say you, you can't picture a man from Circleville, Indiana, we'll say, or Ohio, as being tall, thin, with high cheekbones and sensitive. Well, it's very difficult. To, where, where do you, yes, you know, you know what I mean? It would be very disappointing to find out that, say, Anthony Perkins came from Aurora, Illinois. Something like that. Has to, you, know, you know what I mean? It's, it's very subtle uh, how to describe it. Where does anything come from? Where does Marlon Brando? If you find out that Marlon Brando com, comes from a place called Lout, Ohio, you know, and you know, rode bicycles and had fist fights like other people. Somehow that reduces his effectiveness as a sensitive person. Uh, it does. Well, now here we have Nashville, Tennessee. An unfortunate thing happened to prison co-ed Sarah Jeanette Johns on her way to the University of Tennessee. And we're quoting here. She succumbed, quote, to the sudden temptations, and this is what she said, the sudden temptations of a free modern society and kept late hours shortly after she was paroled to attend the university. State Corrections Director Harry Avery said Wednesday. 
I was scared to, I was scared of life, Miss Johns told the Pardons and Paroles Board, which revoked her parole at a hearing Wednesday. She said she went into a movie Monday night, quote, got scared and spent the rest of the night and early morning drinking in local taverns. Officers were waiting for her when she returned home at 2 a.m., four hours behind her parole curfew. Her conduct clearly indicates she should not be further paroled at present, said Avery. The 23-year-old woman who had served four years of a 10-year sentence for armed robbery was released from prison last week to study criminal psychology at the university. She had earned 12 college credits through correspondence courses. She will be privileged to carry on her education now through correspondence courses, said Avery. What a one-act play. First of all, the concept of a woman who is, who is in for 10 years for armed robbery being paroled to the university to study criminal psychology is a fascinating conceit right there. And by the way, would be laughed at by Kermit Bloomgarten immediately if you came in with that play. You'd say, oh, what do you mean? You know, that never would happen. What are you talking about? Not a, well, it does in Nashville. And furthermore, a girl going into a movie and seeing a movie and coming out scared of life after having watched a Doris Day movie is pretty fascinating. In short, I have known people to become more depressed about life watching, say, a... Uh, a Paul Newman movie than they are about their life out in Queens. The question is, what are you depressed at? What, what, where is it? You know, the image and the, and the reality, one thing, another. It's all bound up. Oh, it's a wild thing. How many people are more afraid of... Uh, I'm curious as to how much of the world's problems today, psychological, uh, moral, ethical, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up and down the line, are not the products of a kind of showbiz thing that we have foisted off on ourselves. In other words, what started out as a way... Have you ever listened to, to, to communist newscasts? It's fascinating. It, it, what started out... Yes, it's fascinating. What started out, obviously... You see, these guys decided... Let's say they, they decided they were going to have communism in this country. Well, they decided that communism wasn't enough. It's got to be against something else. So they started out, and that be, I'm, I'm sure that in the beginning, when they first started this sort of thing, maybe 30, 40 years ago, you know, this, this gigantic... Communism doesn't exist by itself. It exists as a blast at something else. And the values of itself are kind of uh, questionable. So, in light of the reality of what's happened. So, so what started out originally as kind of icing on the cake began to be the cake itself. And so a newscast in Russia is not about Russia. It's about what's wrong with all the other guys. The whole newscast, you see. And you want to know where, 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 the, where the reality and where the dream stops there. Well, apparently the reality is, you know, a bunch of guys walking around in the rolling pin factory. And, uh, you know, that's it. Uh, but, but, but the dream, you see, consists of every day telling yourself that there are other people that are rotten. And you go on and on. Oh, yeah, that's, 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 then that becomes reality. In short, it's a kind of a showbiz thing. Now, on the other hand, there are millions of people in this country th that are likewise that way. Uh, to give you an example of that, here's another piece, this time again from down south. You might know it. 
from Montgomery, Alabama. The, the Alabama Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution is conducting a campaign aimed at banning school textbooks it considers un-American and pro-communist. Among the objectionable authors, who according to the DAR have been affiliated with pro-communist movements or groups, are two Nobel Prize winners, John Steinbeck and Ernest Hemingway, Archibald MacLeish the poet, and the late Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now, just as a curiosity, uh, just as, a, as an example, now, now that is part of this, the same strange, wild nuttiness that you hear rampant on the communist newscast. If you ever had a chance to, to listen to a shortwave receiver, it's, it's incredible. And you wonder how many people can really believe it over there. Well, what's so sad is you find almost all of them do. That's the end of it. And I'm sure that if a DAR lady gets up before the Alabama Montgomery chapter of the DAR, it says, and I'm sure that all of you know that Mrs. Roosevelt for years was a known communist sympathizer and a Archibald MacLeish. Well, I'm sure that they're all sitting there nodding. Yes. Fantastic. It's a fascinating thing. Uh, that the dream and the reality constantly clash one against the other. And, and no one knows quite where one stops and the other begins. And I'm beginning to believe that since we, uh, that the reality of our world, all of all men, I'm, t I'm talking about in the Western world, uh, the reality of a technical civilization where, where each one of us has practically no value in our society, none whatsoever. Uh, if, if you don't think this is true, uh, I don't know whether you've ever worked. Unfortunately, most people who are writers and so on have never really worked in a gigantic technical, mechanical, and electronic complex. They do not understand what is meant by true worthlessness. And, and if a man works, say, uh, uh, on, on the swing shift at Inland Steel, and there's 48,000 guys coming and going and going in and out, he has no value whatsoever. He, uh, it, uh, and as each new machine comes in, he finds himself, even in his job, being relegated to the role of watcher, where he doesn't even participate when he goes in. He just goes in through the doors, and he doesn't participate when he's even in there. The machine does it. He just watches the machine eventually. Well, a watcher has never been a player. Uh, believe me, playing third base is far different from watching a guy play third base. It's a very different process. And, and we're all used to somehow, in some way, in some area of our life, playing third base. Well, somewhere, even even if even if a guy is is, is uh, his only his only function at the at the office is to sharpen pencils. He might sharpen pencils. Well, one day they bring in the automatic dipole operated pencil sharpener, in which all the pencils are automatically taken from the desks of those who have popped them directly into the machine and are sent back. All he does is watch it all day long, and it sharpens them like forty times better than he ever did. Well, that does a lot of things to his sex life. <laughs> it sure does. It does a lot of things to everything, all up and down the line. Well, eventually, you see, he winds up, he winds up watching Paul Newman movies. And, and yes, and that becomes real life to him. That office isn't. Forget it. His wife certainly isn't. Forget it. I mean, Paul Newman is. And Newman running around and hollering and yelling, hitting guys. And, of course, even to Newman, that isn't real life because Newman in his real life is just like everybody else. He's, he's playing the thing that he would like, you know, and oh boy, it gets all, all tangled up. And for this reason, I think, among others, the actor is the most honored member of our society.
because the actor is translating our poor, sad, ridiculous dreams into a kind of shadow-moving reality. Uh, and and uh, we don't like the writer because you know he's doing something that's magic. Uh, it has nothing to do with what we want to do. Uh, the, 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 the actor is actually hitting guys. He hit somebody. Well, you always want to hit somebody. So here he's hitting guys. Boy, that's the way, you know. And so eventually, uh, people, uh, nondescript people like James Garner become major, uh, become major gods. They literally do. <laughs> and, and all the while, all the while, uh, it's, it's a kind of translation of dream and reality and all kinds of things into a great melange, a great stew of eternal showbiz. I was looking at, I was fascinated to see in the current issue of, uh, well, this, uh, this past week's issue of the New York Times magazine, you find all kinds of little slips of the tongue that are not necessarily, not really slips of the tongue, but they're, let's say, they're, they're an, uh, an attitude towards a new attitude of existence. And you will find, uh, particularly in fashion ads, ads that play upon the things which we dream we are, the truth coming out. There were at least five ads that told women that now, at long last, they can be men. Yes, at long last, the little boy look is now in and is in full swing. Girls, have you ever thought that knickers were for... Oh, my God, no. Yes. And, and, and then, on the other hand, uh, you, you find the opposite, that, that there's a great growing horde of men now who secretly feel that they're little girls who got cheated somewhere along the line. They got the wrong equipment somewhere, you see. And so... So uh, the, the, the ads read for them, have you noticed that Dickie is wearing the new Vaquero sweater? Oh, it's a push-up sleeves, and look at Dickie. The, actually, there was one that they kept referring to the model as Dickie. Well, I thought it was such a, uh, such a gas. Yeah, it was wild, you know, to read this thing coming right out of the Times. And all the while at Times, and it's thunderous, great, big, heavy-handed carved out of stone editorials is talking about man and his destiny, and its little magazine is telling the truth about us. Then there was another ad, another ad, or the two or three of them, that, that, that you don't know that clothing is no longer referred to as clothing. It's no longer referred to as things you wear. It's now referred to, you can be magnificently costumed. Magnificently costumed. Well, a costume is for a play. This is, this is not dress or clothing, you are costumed, which means for the role that you're playing, the magnificently right costume. Yes, as George Aid once put it, a get a good makeup and a good costume and the part, for God's sake, plays itself. <laughs> so so, so, so to, to refer to a guy's dress, to refer to a guy's suit as his costume, says that all of us are playing a scene. We're playing a scene. You don't think for a minute that a knight who was out galloping, fist-fighting with the Saracens thought that he was wearing a costume, did you? <laughs> you know, the rocks were bouncing off the tin hat. Well, it's only 400 years later when you put one of those on, then you are wearing a costume. At the time, you were not. When I'm walking, or it's interesting, I, I look at movies now. Now, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, look at movies of the war. I never once realized that they had not issued me a uniform. It was a costume. And when I see Rip Torn in it now, I realize that I was very wrong. You know, I should have done a lot of things. A lot of things I could have done with my costume to have made it better. You know, like the shirt torn or the whole business. Well, he wears a much better costume uh, than I had. Because, uh, you know, I had all I had was this O.D. shirt. I mean, I, we, we didn't call it a costume. 
And, and so I can see now that, that uh, I'm sure that a lot of kids look upon an army uniform as a kind of costume. It's like a cowboy suit. Is it, uh, do, you, do you think for one minute that a guy running around after rotten, stinky cows in, in, in 1870 thought he was wearing a cowboy suit? You think he really did? Do you? <laughs> I wonder. Uh, are, are, do, you, do you really believe that, that, uh, that, that Madame Pompadour understood the, the basic fact that she was truly wearing an 18th century cow? Do you think that? <laughs> I wonder. Did, did, a, did a Revolutionary War soldier, did he realize that he was beautifully costumed for his time? I mean, he's standing outside a valley forge, you know, the wind is howling and his foot is hurting him and his toe is frozen, but he knows he's beautifully quaffed, you know, with that thing he's got around his head. Uh, only if the, uh, I think we have, we have gone so far away from reality that I believe that at this time, this is probably one of the very first times, maybe it's happened one or two other times in history, maybe a thousand years past, I don't know. But this is one of the very rare times in history when man looked upon everything he did as part of a giant production. Uh, is your life programmed well? You don't think so, huh? Well, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that in a couple of years, Rod Serling will have a group of his writers program. You know, if you'd like a little more dash and daring in your life, they can produce it. It'll be, it'll be all programmed well. And maybe, maybe your lines are, why don't you get Abe Burroughs to come and doctor your show? I mean, Abe Burroughs will come in and sit in and listen to the phrases you use and the lines you use. Maybe you're lousing up your lines. You know, seriously. Maybe you ought to go and take choreography lessons. You know, maybe, maybe your dance, maybe your movements aren't right. I mean, you'll, you'll go clumping up there, and you stand up there next to that pointer thing, and you're trying to tell the boss about the new pre... You've got to move, man. You've got to learn how to move. and You know, hold that pointer, and it makes all the difference. You don't think George C. Scott just slumps, do you? Oh, please. I mean, you saw, you saw, you saw uh, Jackie Gleason playing pool in The Hustler. Why, that's not like any pool player ever does it. That's the way Jackie Gleason does it in the movie playing Minnesota Fats. Minnesota Fats don't do that. I, I happen to have grown up in a pool room, and I know that it ain't quite that way, but it's much better to have Fats do it, you know, and have Jackie do it. And then everyone nods and says, yeah, how many of you who saw that ever have been in a pool room? That's right. That's right. Look at the hands going down now. <laughs> all of a sudden, <laughs> it's okay. All right, and and all you louts that are sitting out there watching the westerns, how many of you ever chased a rotten, stinky cow? Yeah. Well, then you don't watch them. I'm sure. You know, has it ever occurred to you too? Another thing that that if all the sheriffs and all the people who got shot in the western movies and the western plays in one year were put together, they would outnumber the population of the actual West. At any given time, it must be nothing but shooting and guys falling down out there. <laughs> hey, you know, it must have been one devil of a transportation problem. How did they bring all the ammunition out there? That's a very tough problem. All that shooting, you know. And yes, you know, they didn't have ammunition factories in Montana. That was must have been a rotten problem. All that shooting and all that, all those guns they brought out. Uh, they never. <laughs> and I mean, in addition to the beans, you know, the other stuff. Of course, you never see that in those movies, guys. Sitting around with the pork and beans, hollering, but this is 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 the way our world is. It's, it's really definitely. I I I I grew this beard, see, just to kicks. So I was up in Maine, and I'm sitting across from a friend of mine. He says it destroys your image. I said what? I said does it look good or bad? He says I don't know it. I can't tell whether it looks good or bad. It changes your image. 
<laughs> what, are you, what are you devil? You talk. Well, uh, what is the image? This is part of the showbiz world. He couldn't say whether it was good or bad. What he meant was, was that I, as a presentation, had been altered. <laughs> hey, you, know, you don't know where to stop or start. Now, uh, uh, I, I, uh, I, I don't know, you see, uh, at, at this stage of the game. I, I'm curious as to our attitude now, how that's translated in political terms. Uh, I, I don't know, how far do you think Barry Goldwater would get if he was short and fat and sweated under the arms? I wonder. I'm curious about that. Well, that, go, oh, that goes for Kennedy, too. Oh, sure, I mean, in spades. Really. It's, <laughs> I don't know. That's uh, a very delicate thing today, showbiz. It's, uh, it, it, it carries into almost every area of life to the point now where life itself is considered very vastly inferior to the production. Uh, you, you, listen, you listen on the air, you watch television, and you will find that almost everything that is being done today has some character or some person from showbiz involved that there will be a great discussion, we'll say, of the fate of Western man, and you wind up by listening to Sidney Poitier. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Up to that. Oh, everybody, I'm sure that everybody would watch if Lawrence Olivier was to discuss the integration problem. <laughs> oh, yeah, they really would. And, and it's, it's this kind of nuttiness that, that is taking over until finally you find out, and this is what really bothers me, you find out that the guys who become important in various areas of reality are in reality themselves the figments of a kind of show business imagination. I know one or two writers who have made their great name in the world of writing about integration, the big problem now, and they are far more showbiz, believe me, than, <laughs> than Bert Lahr. You know, they really are. Only it so happens that their particular gimmick or gambit is integration. They build a whole career on it. And they're no more concerned about it than Bert Lahr is concerned about, let's say, in reality, the play he's in. He, he's hoping it's go, it'll go. That's what he's really doing. And he's working hard at it and using all his technical skill to make it go. And that's exactly the problem you find in many a writer today. Uh, and and uh, the so-called serious commentator. He's carved a little niche. He suddenly found that he's onto something good, and he goes and goes and goes. It's hard to tell whether any of them are sincere or where, where truth and reality veer off, and they always do. They almost always do, someplace along the line. And uh, I, 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 again, you know, back to the, uh, the television, I think if, if you watch television, I, this afternoon, just out of curiosity, I spent about an hour and a half going from one channel to the next. I was curious. And on every channel during the afternoon, there's some kind of a panel. Who was it? Phyllis McGinley says, on all the channels, nothing but panels. Well, there is a panel. You just keep popping back. And they call them various kinds of game. Various games like, uh, you know, uh, guess the number, uh, hit the bell, who is the whoopee, and all these various things, you know. And, and all, there's always some big fat guy from out of the Catskills circuit boffing at a <laughs> Well, uh, my dad said, and, and they're sitting there, and it's, it's, each one of these games is really just a gimmick to bring another group of showbiz people before the television camera. Some way to bring them there without paying them for what they do, like, say, act. If, uh, if you were going to get Lawrence Olivier to cost you a pretty penny, 
if you get him to guess the name of the contestant or some jazz like that, well, then he comes on, you know, to promote his picture or whatever it is. And so uh, you, you find on every one of the channels, you find some kind of a showbiz personality doing something, all up and down, but always doing, without, almost without exception, doing that other than what he really is, like acting or uh, performing. Here they're just sitting talking about every, every known subject under the sun, which means, I suppose, to the person sitting out there listening that he's getting the real word about these subjects now. If, if you can get Paul Newman to talk about integration, you get the real word, because everyone knows Newman is realer than I am. I mean, after all, I'm not on the screen. <laughs> get more out of life. Go to a movie. Uh, that, that's one of the great signs of our time. Uh, get more out of life. Go to a movie. Mull that one over for a moment. Get more out of life, go to a movie. That's a great phrase, boy. That's really interesting. That's like, get more out of life, die. You know, that kind of thing. Get more out of uh, being awake during the day, fall asleep. <laughs> uh, it's fascinating. Uh, but but then, then, on the other hand, when you, when you see this, when you go back and forth, I'm sure that even the, the things that are real bother people. When they see something that is even a game and it's real, like a ball game sample, I'm not, I'm not, I guess most people are really bugged about baseball watching it, is that there aren't any stars. Not the kind of stars they're used to seeing. The real stars, you know, like, like Paul Newman, uh, you know, like, uh, like Marlon Brando and that. And there are just guys called uh, Philippe Lou, you know, things like that. Whoever saw, what pictures he made, you know, where, where, what's he doing? And the, we really began to love Chuck Connors when he stopped playing first base for the Dodgers and became a, a half-baked Western fish star, huh? Oh, yeah, sure, they're all. Have you noticed that all the ballplayers eventually become bad actors? Just automatically. And somehow the, the oh sure and and boxers too uh, uh, these these <laughs> semi illiterate boxers or is it semi literate which do you prefer uh, are continually popping up now as actors well what I uh, come come on now baby and and uh, it's great acting just fantastic acting is stumble around and knock the props over and and everyone applauds us that's real and it's very real. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know where it is. And, and, and oh, yes, of course, it's, have you noticed that all the way along the line now, people vaguely are applauding. I saw a, a half-baked editorial in the Times applauding Cassius Clay in a sort of a backhand way. Cassius Clay is probably the worst thing that's happened to boxing in 150 years or ever. He's the first example of the wrestling-type character entering in boxing. Well, wrestling went down the drain when guys started to get into the wrestling ring uh, dressed like the Angel or uh, the the Masked Marvel from Perot, you know, that kind of, the Batman. Forget it. Well, well, Cassius Clay is the first example of that nuttiness to enter boxing. Nobody worries about whether he's got a right hook. All they, he's going to come into the ring. Did you read that thing? Wearing a crown with a with with a long robe, and there will be seven beautiful girls to bring him into the ring. This is exactly like wrestling, and they're going to love it. The, 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 the louts and the beer drinkers are going to applaud. And finally, wrestling makes sense. Boxing makes sense. It finally makes it. No wonder they all like pro football. Pro football is just beanbag, you know? <laughs> pro football is not football. It's beanbag, you know, throwing a little thing back and forth. And they can see it. It's very easy. You know, speaking of, uh, of pro football and, uh, again, the part of showbiz, have you noticed the, the great difference between 
the kind of camera work that you see on a good football game and the lousy, rotten camera work that you see on all the ball games. I have never seen any more unimaginative use of cameras than you see on ball games, baseball games. They love these long shots of the field where you can't see anything, just little dots out there, nothing, you see. And, and they hate close-ups uh, because most of them uh, are, are converted guys who used to work on the late movies. You know, so they sent them out to direct the ball game, and they don't, they, they don't know from baseball. I happen to know three baseball directors in town that hate baseball and know nothing whatsoever about it. It's, a, it's an afternoon uh, thing, you know, they have to do, and it's terrible. But did you see the All-Star Packers game? One of the greatest examples of camera work I've ever seen on a sporting event. Fantastic. Uh, did you see those shots of Vince Lombardi? Oh, boy, was that reality. Oh, and those shots of Otto Graham running back and forth on the sidelines, you never get shots like that of Casey. Never. I mean, you never get shots like when Freddie Hutchinson is going out of his skull in the red dugout out there. Why aren't they picking it up? Never. No. What do we get? We get a long shot of the Ballantine beer sign, you know. I mean, uh, <laughs> that kind of jazz, you know. Oh, boy. We're living in a great world. It's too bad. I'm sorry. I'm really, it's too bad that Marlon Brando can't play second base. I think there'd be a lot of ball fans all of a sudden. And if somehow we could get uh, Zero Mostel to become a relief pitcher for the Mets, I think, you know, the season would be made.